Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. This is our third week of the April Mental Health Book Club on Jamel Hill's memoir, Uphill. Today, we're going to be discussing chapters 11 through 14. So if you haven't read those and you're following along, definitely go back and check those out. Uh, as always, I want to jump in with what uh, folks' uh, initial reactions or takeaways from this section were. I wanted more. It's like you got the beginnings of certain things. And she's so fascinating. And she's such a strong woman. But we're only getting like the surface of different things. And so like, I'm hoping this is just kind of like the starter book. And that she'll write another one that's more in depth with some of the things that she's gone through and things that she's experienced because it just felt like there wasn't, there's more. I'm really liking, um, still liking this book and like Angela, like I feel like she does like scratch the surface on like a lot of stuff and it would be nice if she wrote like maybe another book where she got deeper on like some of the topics, but it's been really good to follow her story and to see how she described a lot of the things that she went through at work and how you know, it relates to kind of the things that I've gone through at work. And I like was just shaking my head like, this is so annoying. Why do we have to go through this like type of thing? I think it's really interesting, like hearing her side of like what happened, because kind of being at ESPN around some of the same time, some of this stuff was going on. It's kind of interesting because obviously the powers that be wanted to sweep everything under the table. Um, and I definitely remember memos going out about, hey, you can't do this. You can't say that. You can't do this on air because um, it was definitely a barrage of emails that came in that were like, you guys are too black. So, I mean, if, if that's who you are at your core, that's what your upbringing is. You're going to reflect that when you give are given the chance on air. It's, it's part of you. You can't hide it. You can't tone it down. But the fact that that's what ESPN attempted to do for Michael and her basically was kind of like a slap in the face. I sometimes like a, a story of someone who's very different when, than what I would typically read from because it's like, wait, it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in or what career you have. Like People across the board are experiencing these things, whether it be the perspective of a woman just living life or uh, it being a Black person living their life in this particular type of space. So in this case, we have a Black woman, right? And right from the jump in Chapter 11, which the chapter of the title is applicable because she calls it the voices in my head. I think she talks about like identity and kind of, I wouldn't say imposter syndrome because I think she was very assured of who she was, but still when you know you're the shit, but you exist in a world that's not set up to let you be great, um, you still will question yourself, not because you don't believe it from within, but because the outside is leaching in, if that makes sense. So in on like the second page there, 
She says, quote, overnight, the number of people who read my column expanded to millions. And I had made the mistake of trying to prove why I deserve the job in my first 1000 words, end quote. So <clears throat> she had talked about how she really felt like the first column that she did was terrible. And it was because when you do the work and you get the position, um, and I think a lot of people uh, can relate to this if if you're um, coming from a place or you've not believed that good things will happen to you or you get somewhere in life and then you're there, you almost feel like, oh crap, now I have to make sure I don't mess up and lose this opportunity or I can't disappoint those who are like rooting for me or, you know, who look up to me and stuff like that. It is a lot of pressure. And I just... I don't know. She said she was tra- she made the mistake of trying to prove that she deserved that job in the first thousand words because she's a writer. But I think every job I've ever had, I've gotten there and I'm like, okay, especially because I was entering my field of mental health. I have a very youthful appearance. Like before I grew facial hair, I definitely look like a damn teenager. But that was part of why I grew facial hair because people didn't take me seriously. They're like, oh, you're young. What do you know about this? And I was like, Um, And so I really felt like, okay, I have to prove, you know, or why I belong there. And so, but I think as I've gone through different jobs and positions and things like that, that that's a very real feeling of when you first get to a job or you level up or you get to that next like rung is, oh, wait, did they just give me like, are they going to realize that they gave a job to someone who's under like you start to, you know, question yourself. Um, And I think that's a very real experience. Um, I felt like that a lot when I first got the job that I I have now. Um, cause if you're from this area, the company that I work for, like, is well known and it's kind of like, oh, if you work there, like, you're doing pretty well for yourself. Um, and I know when I first started, like, my parents were like, oh, you know, she just got a job at so and so and real proud and everything. And, I was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to mess this up. Like, good things don't happen to me. How is this going to end? And now, like a year later, and I'm still there and didn't mess it up and did the opposite. So I I felt like that a lot. And I know she I don't have the the exact page in front of me, but I know in the book she was talking about um, how there is different treatment between her and like a white coworker for doing kind of the the same actions and she just knew to not ruffle the boat and really you know make a big stink of you know why was I treated this way and he wasn't when we did the exact same option I mean the exact same thing or similar things um and I've had that feeling as well where it's like oh you know I did this or this person did the same thing and why were they treated differently or why were they given opportunities that I wasn't given? And, you know, it's just kind of, kind of unfair, but at the same time, it's like, you know, when to pick your battles. And I have that example highlighted. So we'll, we'll come back to that specific one where it was, there were actually several examples where it was side by side, like she did this as a black woman, a white man did this and it was a completely different outcome. So on that same note, Jamel talks about money 
And I think oftentimes conversations around money are taboo. Um, I've worked at many jobs where I'm pretty sure like you sign something saying that you're not allowed to talk to other people about how much you're getting paid and stuff like that, which as a person who's now gotten to a point in my career where I work for myself, I look back and I'm like, what kind of twisted shit was that? Like, it's almost like keeping people from understanding their value and uh, almost blocking them from having the ability to advocate for themselves. It's really odd that that is common practice. But in this chapter, I'm going to share um, uh, a couple snippets. I'm going to piece them together. It's not continuous, but uh, that kind of talks about money. So, quote, considering that television personalities can make staggering sums, there will always be a, cont- a contingent of people who believe media personalities are overpaid. But when it's someone Black making a lot of money, let alone a Black woman, the backlash seemed far more personal and resentful. Black people are just supposed to be grateful for what we get. And anytime we advocate and champion for ourselves or aggressively negotiate for our worth, we're perceived as greedy, disloyal, and unappreciative. And she goes on to say, I felt like I had no choice but to be fearless. I wasn't going to change the minds of people who had already decided that I didn't deserve what I'd work hard to earn. I wasn't going to obsess over things that I couldn't change or control, end quote. So she shares several examples about how people had something to say about where, you know, what position she had had or how much money she was making. And then even then, the what she actually made and what people thought she made was way higher than what she was actually getting paid but then she wasn't allowed to say how much she actually got paid. And I will um, circle back on something that two of y'all had shared in the beginning. It was like, well, I, I hope that she gets more. I will say that from reading this section, it almost feels like she's not saying everything she can say because there's probably some sort of non-disclosure agreement that she's signed. I can't confirm that, but it's feeling like there's an NDA involved with this like she's she's going in as far as she can but she can't really get below the surface maybe nita you can speak to that i'm sure that in working in media there's a lot of ndas and stuff so that could be what's going on but that's my theory so even at my level i feel like i'm pretty low at the new station um when we ever we get a raise we have to sign again that says we won't discuss our raise with even our coworkers, all this kind of stuff and it's partly because they know that they play favorites so they don't want you to know that they're playing favorites so if it could be me and a young man named john who's white guy same age he might be making more money than me just because that's the nature of the business most of the people making the decisions look like him so they're going to watch out for him So it it sucks. And the farther you go up, the less people in management positions you see of color, especially women of color, especially sports. Even though we make up such high numbers in uh, being the athletes, you can see it when it comes to team owners, the way they tell people, hey, do what I say. I don't care who you are. Don't kneel. Don't do that. Don't do this. Um, We in turn are just like props for most of them, you know. We create a lot of the revenue on the downside of it, but the people at the top will still control and rule with the iron fist. So for her, uh, she can go in and she can't talk to even another woman because the other woman, well, why it might be a white young lady. She's probably making less than the men too, because that's what they do. The white men are going to make the most money. 
it's like that glass ceiling that we're still trying to make. Men are going to make more money than us for the majority of professions. It's just one of those things. It's like the byproducts of being in a patriarchal society, right? But they do tell you don't discuss it. If you get caught discussing it, it could be suspension. You can get fired, all that kind of stuff. So Money, like I said, is one of those... uh... It's taboo for some strange reason. I don't understand it. Possibly because I work in a uh, profession where I literally talk to people about, you know, their deepest, darkest secrets and the most mundane everyday shit, too. Um, So kind of nothing is off limits for what I talk with people about on a regular basis. But I think even, you know, with me being, you know, a solo practitioner, I work for myself, company of one, whatever you want to call it. The first thing that I kind of have to address with people when I talk to a potential client on the phone is how much I cost, right? And I think this experience with her, like advocating for herself, like she eventually did get somebody who would like do the advocating for her. And then she would joke with them and be like, hey, you didn't make me enough or you didn't get me enough money for this or whatever, you know? Um, So she kind of came around and like learned how the game was played and how people do that sort of stuff. But I think for me as a person working in my field, I've worked for agencies and stuff like that. And very much uh, prior before working for myself, I would go places and they had that salary picked out before the interview. Then they like play these games of, well, what kind of salary are you looking for? And then it's like, you have that pressure of, well, shit, if I undercut myself, they're going to be like, well, fuck, he said he'll work for this amount of money. So let's lower that bar, even though we had budgeted for such and such, right? And so I remember navigating those sorts of things and almost like taking the risk of like shooting high. And then I was like, if they don't hire me, if they, you know, almost like you have to take the risk of saying, I'm worth this. This is what I bring to the table. And then, you know, there were times where they're like, okay, well, we want you, but here's the salary we can work with, you know, but I think I've advocated for myself on the front end. And it's like, then you get to make a decision. Um, But as a working for myself, it's interesting too, because it's kind of like, okay, I've set this dollar amount on what an hour of my time looks like. And then you have people who it's almost like you can haggle for a car, you can haggle for like uh, a car price, but it's like, you know, people are like, oh, well, you're charging this. And it's almost like, you know, pe- people said when you set your rate, you should look at what the industry standard is and stuff like that. I'm just like, I'm not doing that because I know what my student loans cost. I know what I've been through. I know, you know, the different things. And I said that. And so people will try to haggle with me and they're like, oh, this amount for a, and then when it, you know, the difference between like in-person and online with COVID and everything, they're like, oh, is it the same price if you're doing online sessions? And I'm like, hell yes, it is. These student loan payments still have to happen even if I'm, even if I'm doing sessions on the internet or if I'm seeing you in person, what you mean? Uh, So there was that, but I will also say too, um, if I'm being transparent, I have been afraid to raise my rates. I haven't raised my rates for the past over two years. And I think it's because I've I've encountered a few people who will flat out say therapy isn't worth that. And then it almost makes me feel like I'm being greedy. Like, like Janelle, Jim, um, Jamel said, she's like, you're perceived as being greedy. Um, and so I've kind of encountered that a few times where it just kind of keeps, you know, 
So I'm not, I'm saying I, I like shared the story and I'm like, oh yeah, I made it to where I work for myself and I know my worth and I know what my, my bills are and stuff like that. But I, it would be an incomplete story if I didn't also give the real end of it is that I've kind of been afraid to raise my rates, even though inflation has literally shot through the roof over the past two years. Like I know all of the white people are raising their rates and I've talked with, I have colleagues who I have a colleague who's a a woman and she's white. Her rate is significantly higher than mine. And, you know, people are raising their rates because people, you know, inflation is high and all of that stuff. But that whole thing of, am I, I know I'm worth it, but then that, that weird mind game of having to prove to other people that you're worth something. It's a, it's, it's really tricky. I'm interested in what y'all's experiences with that are. I was a stay-at-home mom for 15 years, so there was no payment and no compensation other than the luxury and privilege of having a husband that said I could stay home. So I didn't have to work and I could raise my kids, which wound up being necessary when um, my daughter got diagnosed with bipolar and we spent three years trying to keep her from killing herself. So, but in response to what you said, that white woman raising her rates probably isn't thinking about the fact that she might have clients that don't have the income she has or the privileges that she has. And you are cognizant of that. So that's what makes you feel guilty, except for the fact that you are worth more money. Um, Just having this book club with you tells me and seeing you online that you are worth a higher rate, but you're also thinking about the people that need therapy, if they can't access it, if it's not accessible to them, then what are you doing? You know, you're still trying to make your money. You're still trying to provide for your family, but you're also trying to um, get to the core of what other people need. And um, I think that's probably the difference because if you're coming from a place of privilege, you're not thinking about those things and it's easier to raise your rates without having guilt. Uh, about it. You're just thinking about this is what I need. And if they can't pay it, well, then they can't pay it. And I'll just have the client base that I have. Um, And so I think that's a huge problem with having privilege, regardless of who you are, or where you're from, is that you aren't, you have these blind spots, right, where you, you don't think about that. And for her, I think walking into that that first article and even the the next article where she was compared, you know, this person said the same, almost the exact same thing and didn't even get a slap on the wrist and hers kind of like blew up. Um, when you have to constantly be worrying about how you're presenting yourself, you're not going to present yourself accurately because of the fear of getting criticized or not fitting in or whatever. And the nice thing was seeing her blossom once she got on that show with Mike and, and wasn't apologetic about them using the movie references they wanted to use and the skits they wanted to do. And it was like her finally getting her footing, even though they still weren't being recognized the way that they should. And they still weren't getting probably paid the way that they should. Um, but seeing her kind of push through, you know, even though it's a slow process, she still to character, to her character, has not allowed people to make her move backwards. 
there's no backwards for her. She's going to go forward. And even if there's painful moments, which there are for her, she still has that forward momentum. And that's, um, yeah. When I did work, I think um, when my kids were still little, the most I ever made in a year as a single mom after I got divorced was $12,000. That was the most money I ever made in a year and had to raise two kids on that. So um, people could look at what she made and be like, oh my gosh, why is she complaining about that? But that girl worked hard. <laughs> she had to go through a lot of shit. And I can't imagine, I I can't imagine what being a black woman in any type of job or corporation could possibly feel like that it pisses me off one that I can't, I mean, I can feel bad and be angry about it, but I will never know what you go through and it's shit. And I'm sorry you go through it. I'll, I'll piggyback off of that. When she talked about her actual salary, I think she handled it well, how she said it because she said what she needed to say. And then she followed it up with, I understand that you're probably some people are reading this and you're probably thinking because that's the thing about money when you're dealing with different careers, different levels, you're not th- most the average person isn't thinking that person had to go to college, that person had to work shitty jobs, that person had to pay their dues, that person all of these different things. Just like what I had shared before, I say okay, this is my rate for therapy. The people aren't really thinking, they're thinking, okay, I got to pay for this service. This is my budget. You know, they're not thinking, okay, you're paying for all of that shit I had to go through to get to where I am to be the level and the quality that I can provide to you. Right. They're thinking of you're a machine that does a job. Right. And so um, when I read initially, when I read through, I was like, she was talking about like, my, uh, I think there was a part where she's like, in the seven years, my income only increased by $70,000. I was like, okay, uh, that one doesn't, that one doesn't resonate. It doesn't hit. It doesn't, I can't relate, you know, but when she, when she, she backed it up and she said, she helped me as a reader understand where she was going with that. And it made it more she wasn't being entitled and complaining about money. She was, I, I think she never lost the, she's a real person who has value and who has paid her dues. And I think I always tell people comparison is the thief of joy. But in this context, she was able to say like, compared to people in my industry with the same accolades and the same experiences and or not even a fraction of what I have or what I brought to the table or the experience, I was actually being severely underpaid. Um, So I'm glad that she was able to have that conversation because I think having that conversation, you take a risk of pissing people off or somebody who uh, doesn't have that level of privilege. Because you can have privilege as a black woman, you know, in a high paying job and stuff like that. We all have privilege. We we have privilege that we all live in the United States, right? You know, we 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 have privileges in that I believe all of us here have been to college, right? So there's there's certain privileges, but I think as she talked from her place of privilege, she took a risk on losing some people. But I think she did it at least for me, because at first I was like, What you mean you only got a seventy thousand dollar like 
that's huge. So I'm like reading it and she almost lost me for a second, but her writing was good enough that it brought me back in. And I was like, oh, wait, okay. I'm seeing what you're saying here. You're piecing the, she gave all the pieces versus just like quickly saying something, you know? So I think she handled that well. So a couple of y'all have alluded to this and I'm just going to like share the snapshot of the example and we'll kind of go into it. So um, it was actually mentioned in the last episode. So I'm going to give the background. I wrote bullet points to the side. Uh, Jamel was pressed for an idea on a column. She was kind of tapped out on her ideas. So she thought, I got to do something. Uh, she wasn't putting, she wasn't doing her best, she said. And she did something impulsive and it had a huge backlash. So she writes this column. Um, it was supposed to be like kind of um, humorous. And, you know, she was kind of, you know, just, she was shooting for an idea and it did not land well. So the line that really got her in trouble is said, quote, rooting for the Celtics is like saying Hitler was a victim. There was more to the the column than obviously that, but that was what everyone gravitated to. And then she later goes on to say, quote, my credibility and integrity were on the line, if not already gone. The hardest part to accept was that my own laziness put me in this position. I got too comfortable. I wasn't, it wasn't my editor's fault, even though it is technically his job to save me from myself. Those were my words and I had to own what I did. And then she goes on to say, ESPN wanted things to blow over, but I didn't want to rush into pretending that I hadn't fucked up. If I had to wear my fuck up for a while, so be it, end quote. And that is the little snippets that I took from that. What I'm going to say about it is that it was a uh, career defining like a uh, mistake that she made. But I, what I will say is that all of us in every uh, walk of life that we all bring to the table, whether it be having been a stay at home mom or whether it be working in corporate America or whether it be being an entrepreneur working for yourself, right? We've all fucked up, right? And um, I think this experiences of course she's sharing her fuck up but not everybody responds to a fuck up the same way and i of course there's more um that will follow this and how there's compared to who's allowed to fuck up what way and what the consequences are because it's very different based on you know uh a lot of different factors but um i wanted to to lead with that so i'm interested in what y'all thought as you um, read that story and how it played out. I, when I read it, I went, um, cause it was just kind of one of those things where like, Ooh, that's, uh, that's not good. <laughs> um, but like you said, we've all fucked up at work. And I think what stood out to me or one of the things that stood out to me the most is that she acknowledged what she did. She took, um, you know, the heat for it and, you know, issued an apology. Um, and it wasn't one of those things where, you know, she didn't see the, the seriousness of this, the situation. Um, first, I just want to say, Angela, I think it's amazing that you were there to support your daughter when she needed you the most. I wish so many more parents were willing to do that for their kids. The world would be such a better place. So I think that's fantastic. Um, and as far as this Jamila Hill situation, um, 
the fact that she goes on in a few lines later from what you shared to say, I've been brought up R. Kelly, but that didn't raise a flag. So you bring up this guy that was out here like preying on young girls to have sex and nobody cares. It's like, whatever. So you bring up Hitler. Yes, it's horrible. But then you have this coach, Lou Holtz, that did the same thing and nobody even batted an eye. And it's just like, oh, he got away with everything because technically he did. He didn't get suspended, didn't really get fined. It was, and we started to see a pattern with her as we read more and more that at ESPN, she would do something get in trouble, have to play the consequences. Her male counterparts would not have to do anything for doing the same thing, if not worse. And that has to get frustrating when you are like this trying to, everybody makes mistakes, right? The thing is, it's different, I guess, when you're a columnist and everybody can see it. Like it's out on display for the world. And, you know, once you post something to the internet, it's there forever. You can't get rid of it. So versus somebody that is at a firm and they may make a, mistake with their numbers only the people that are related to that project are gonna know so it sucks that she didn't get the opportunity to really live it down and i just think it's something that we face some more scrutiny when we're minorities because we always feel like we have to prove ourselves even more to be in that same space yeah she writes that um Jamel needed to worry about Jamel as a black woman. I had no expectation that I would be given the same treatment and grace as white folks after making a mistake. And then she also talks about um, that she had to play the leverage game because she knew no one was going to come to her rescue. And she had to, like you had said earlier, I think Whitney said that she had to pick her battles. What's what's important? I want the contract. I want to be paid what I'm worth. So am I going to start this over here about this Holtz guy and drag crap on or make myself look worse because I'm being assertive, which she definitely had the right to do. But that, of course, was going to put her back in looking a certain way to these people who were already not treating her fairly. That's just got to be exhausting i'm going to share the highlights that i had for that lou holtz situation so that the listeners to the podcast can kind of have the the full context so quote former notre dame coach lou holtz who was an in-studio college football analyst for espn at the time was on air with host reese davis and analyst mark may discussing rich rodriguez's rocky start as head coach at the university of michigan when holtz evoked the name of a certain dictator slash murderer. It was Adolf Hitler. You know, I don't have to read the specific word by word, but we're getting into the double standard here. So she continued on to say, Holtz, of course, wasn't suspended for his Hitler reference. The problem was that it created a terrible optic. ESPN swiftly suspended its Black female columnist for an inappropriate Hitler reference, but spared a legendary white football coach who also inappropriately and awkwardly referenced Hitler. Holtz issued an apology, and that was it. ESPN never made a statement about Holtz. His public apology was released the day after he made his comments. And, end quote. And I'll add to that, I believe her apology wasn't able to be released for about two weeks or more after the incident, because they suspended her and she wasn't allowed to do any of the damage control. It was almost like, we're going to move you out of the way and then you're going to come back and you need to fly under the radar. But as I shared earlier, they wanted things to blow over, but she didn't want 
she fought with them to be like, no, you need to let me speak about my life and who I am. But it's kind of fucked up because two weeks in media is a lifetime. This thing has already taken on like a, a wildfire. And also it's important to know that she, the, the line about Hitler was in the thing for only a very short amount of time. I want to say it wasn't even a whole day or something before it was removed, but it would had already taken off. So it's like, then you take her out of the, the running to even speak for herself because of all of these like contracts and rules about how you can communicate with the public and stuff like that. They basically, you know, it was, it was a system set up to where she couldn't really speak for herself. So I didn't want to add that, that context, but please y'all continue the conversation about how that played out. So, I mean, in opening the book, going back to her conversation about Trump, it's kind of telling that, you know, um, once ESPN started getting this label from the right, that they were too liberal, they started making targets of a lot of their minority anchors. They started to really nitpick what they could say, what they could do. And it was just to appease the masses. But if you think about it, sports are supposed to be a great equalizer. You're supposed to take politics out of sports. And it lets you know that people don't really do that as much as they say, as much as you might have a Trump come in and be like, oh, you know, baseball is just about baseball. Let them play football or somebody telling LeBron James, you know, just dribble. Like, this man has a whole life outside of sports. He has kids that look up to him. You can't tell him to just dribble when you have people that are spray painting the N-word on his house. So when people don't realize how far people take sports, it's kind of crazy. People take it way too serious for you to tell them, you know, just shut up and dribble a ball. Yeah, I think the the sentiment of not everything is equal when it comes to, like I had introduced this thing, I say we all fuck up right? doesn't matter what where you're at in life, what stage or what pay grade you're at and stuff like that. We all make mistakes but because to be human is to be imperfect, right? Literally, the name of this podcast is called Perfectly Imperfect, right? Uh, we're never going to be perfect, but we embrace the fact that to be human is to be imperfect. We can, you know, be a little nicer to ourselves. So, Obviously, a lot happened in the, this particular chunk of the book. You know, it's always interesting to get a group of people together who read the same thing and to see what people gravitated towards. And I'm sure that because there was a lot of development with like her sports career and different little projects that she worked on and stuff. And we're definitely going to get to that. But I guess my mind, probably given current events and, you know, just where I'm at in life and what I see in my vantage point of the world, right? I focused on the the race component and I focused on what it was her experiences of being a black woman in, uh, first of all, a very male dominated um, space. Um, I don't know if that's been actually said, but there's not a ton of women in the line of work that she's doing. But then as she kind of gets her bearings and she starts to make more money, she gives us one example about how her appearance came into a thing so like before she's writing so it don't matter what you look like when you're writing right but as she starts to i guess her contract expected her to be on tv or as a person who grew up you know not having very much and she realized oh if i'm on tv i can make more money kind of thing she's like dave sent me that first check and i said i guess i'm a tv person now you know i just want to read a section about her experience and then we can kind of discuss it so quote 
Later, I learned that this was a common experience for Black women in the television industry. So context, she's talking about makeup, hair, wardrobe, that kind of stuff. Uh, A lot of makeup artists didn't know how to apply makeup on Black skin. They struggled to adequately match our skin tone or didn't consider how different differently lighting works on us compared to non-Black women. Black makeup artists would never be hired by a network unless they knew how to apply makeup to everyone who worked there. But plenty of networks still hire makeup artists who aren't familiar with Black skin and hairstylists who are unfamiliar with Black hair. I've heard so many hair and makeup horror stories from Black women in the business. Some of them had grown so frustrated with the lack of consideration for their needs that they would do their own hair and makeup and pay additional expenses to have their hair, their own hair and makeup team, end quote. And I read a lot of memoirs. I tell you all this. So many memoirs I've read of Black women or Black uh, people in general, you know, from different types of careers and things, whether they be uh, actors or um, working in the fashion industry and different things like that have dealt with this very same thing. I, one of my favorite um, people in general is Mariah Carey. Um, and I uh, read her memoir more times than I should probably admit um, to the public, but I own the book so I can do what I want. And she talks about, you know, she's mixed race, but her hair is not even consistent across her head. Right. She talks about how like, you can't just go at it with like, the way you would treat a white girl's hair because it's going to, you know, you're going to mess it up or you're going to damage it. Right. Um, and so I've just seen so many of the same experience where it's like, um, and she even said, so um, I want to say, she said, she said, when I got a glimpse of myself in the mirror, I was the same shade as Donald Trump, which is funny considering how this book started. Uh, but they had her looking orange, you know, because if you don't know how to do uh, black makeup or black hair, you're going to have these people out here looking crazy. Um, but I I, uh, I thought it was very interesting how she made that parallel of they'll hire a makeup artist who can style or work with the majority, but they won't even consider hiring a specialized person who is a Black person who works on Black makeup or Black hair unless they also know how to do all the white people's hair. It's just interesting how that, again, it's always double standards and she is at that intersection of a lot of double standards because she's both a woman and black. Also at the intersection of she's a woman in a male dominated thing. So it's just across the board. I'm sure even the women in that industry have fewer resources than the men do. Um, so it's just a lot of stuff on top of each other. So I just interested in what y'all thought of that. Um, I like to read uh, memoirs too. And I remember reading in, um, Gabrielle Union's memoir that she talked about the same thing where there was many times where she had to like come prepare with her own hair done um, or her own makeup done. And that was kind of the standard in like the nineties and like early two thousands where you just, or there just wasn't a lot of options for makeup and or hair in terms of like, what's available for black women. I think there was just like fashion fair at the time in terms of just like makeup. Um, But like, as you were talking, I started thinking about even for a long time going to like hair cuttery or like gray clips or somewhere that's supposed to be for everyone to just walk in there and like pick your stylist and 
you know, um, or you, you're guaranteed to come out with a, a decent hairstyle or, you know, a good haircut. But there's been so many times in like my personal life where, you know, I know not to go to certain salons because as a black woman with natural hair, my hair is probably not going to come out right. And I'm going to be wasting my money or, you know, like there, and it, it's such a, a double standard because the, the same, you know, black stylists in there still have to learn how to do or know how to do, you know, not just, you know, black people's hair or black women's hair. They have to know how to like cut kids hair and cut men's hair and, you know, white women, Hispanic women, Asian women, whatever, a variety of races and different types of hair. But that standard isn't, you know, upheld to or across other stylists or all stylists. On that sentiment, um, so I have locks. Uh, but my, uh, it start. I used to have what I called like a fro hawk. So the, it's under, it's undercut, like the sides are shaved and it goes back into the shape of a hawk, which is what my afro used to be shaped like. Um, so I get, uh, you know, I get the sides cut um, to to maintain that style. And um, kind of like what you were saying, like you can go to a quote barber or someone who cuts hair. Um, I learned that the hard way early in my lock journey because I went to a barber who's supposed to know how to cut hair as in cut the hair that is not locks. Right. And homegirl chopped right into half of two of my locks at the root did not tell me what she did, but obviously after you go home from a haircut, you're kind of like, you know, cleaning the loose hairs off and stuff like that. And I realized that. So um, I actually ended up having to have, let me find it here. Not that the people on the podcast can see, but you can see this lock right here. Um, it had to be combined uh, because she cut into half of the, the base of two of them. And my locks, those locks could have very well just fallen out. Um, so I had to go to then a specialist to who could use a crochet needle to combine the two to save them and structure, like strengthen the integrity of it. But the lady didn't tell me what she did. I did go back and get my money back. Y'all know who I, how I roll. Um, and uh, I proceeded to let her know about herself. But um, yeah, I had to go to a specialist to fix the problem. And then after that, I was almost paranoid to continue to... I even considered like, oh, I might just grow the hair out underneath and like, I don't know, either start locks at a different length from underneath or get lock extensions to just have a full head of locks because I was so traumatized by that. So yeah, we as Black people can't just trust that these one-size-fits-all things will work for us. Um, and there's no incentive for them too, right? Because the majority can go to these places and they can get the service that they want and come out looking great. Meanwhile, we leave with our hair fried up and traumatized or chopped off, you know? So um, I just wanted to add that little tidbit in there, but um, interested in other people's perspectives on, like she said, about having to make sure to advocate for yourself in those um, spaces where you're not the majority. I will say it's always interesting, especially talking to uh, some of the young Black men that come work at my TV station. The first thing they want to know is where, what barbershop to go to, who can I trust? Once you form a relationship with your good barber, that's like a, a breakup if you got to move. It, it's very serious. And it's the same way with the young lady I go to to get my hair braided. Like, if I had to go to somebody else, she had a, a situation where she wanted to quit one day. I was like, well, you know, just send me your address. I'll come to your house 
and get my hair braided. This is a lifelong situation at this point. I'm coming back. So it's like once you find somebody that you're really comfortable with, you typically try to stay with them only because you don't want to test the waters and then somebody mess you up. And especially your natural hair can get messed up so quickly. They can ruin the texture. They can ruin so much stuff. And um, like in the converse, I, I remember my sister was getting married and the makeup artist was doing makeup. And it was a young lady that was very, very like light skin, very, very. Um, the makeup artist was a young black lady and she completely botched the job like. This this young lady should not have had like pink blush on. This is 2018. What man, what are you doing? So it, it happens both sides, but it definitely is more prevalent for African American people to have trouble, especially in the like mainstream type job to get those services. So even when we used to have uh stylists and stuff come in at the station I'm at, a lot of the time they were not very helpful for the African-American clients. So a lot of them, I would be like, especially the young men, most men are not used to wearing makeup. I'd be like, go to the mall, go to the mat counter and the mat counter will typically get you together, but make sure you go to the right mall because if you go to the wrong mall, they're going to have you looking crazy on there. You're going to look orange and uh, HD is not forgiving. You're going to notice every wrong thing. So it's very interesting to find young men coming to that as well, like learning how to do all this stuff. Um, but I think this is why organizations like NABJ and all those things came to be because in a NABJ is the National Association of Black Journalists. So she talks about it. But really, it was started because the journalists would get together after going through some crap at work and drink and talk about all the problems that they were facing. So I met several of the original family members of this organization, and had it not been for them, who knows where we would be. Thanks for sharing that. And to add to that, too, this particular section of the book, we're talking about hair and makeup. It's hard enough to find a variety of cosmetic, like, makeup products for skin tones of color anyway. Like, only very, very recently can you get a Band-Aid that's not fish belly white color it says nude but it it's only nude for a certain set of people you know so having someone who is actually a specialist who knows how to do things with makeup is even more important because it's already hard enough to get what you need to do your best like i i think we we come back to this often but it's like we're as people of color we're existing in spaces that were never designed for our existence um, in the capacities that we exist now. So that's why these things are worth mentioning, but it's still interesting. Like it's almost like in a lot of different things we come back, you know, before this, we started recording, we were talking about like the gun violence and how we're seeing all these shootings and stuff like that. And it's like, we preface all these things with in 2023, we still have to deal with blank. Right. And I think it comes back to, we like to think we're so evolved and that we've overcome, I mean, which we have, we, we really, you know, the, we can't throw everything out, you know, and say that it's all hopeless, but it, it, it puts it makes you feel some kind of way when you think of like, wow, it truly is 2023, you know, with all of the different things and the technologies and the, the stuff that we can do and how you can literally press a button on a phone and the thing can be at your doorstep in an hour, like. 
with all of the different resources that we have available to us, some of the most basic things are just not even considered for certain people. It's very odd, but that's another little tangent, but I'm, I'm interested how y'all continue to evolve this idea. I think what's hard about this is that you don't want, people don't have to be the champion. That's not their role. Everyone is welcome to their space in the world and entitled to it just per their existence. Um, but it does make you appreciate um, people who champion for these things more. Something that came to mind um, in this discussion and reading this, I love, 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 love Misty Copeland. Um, and I used to be a ballerina. Um, and that was pretty big for me. But ballet has has so many problems, um, whether that be representation by race, weight, height, you know, there's lots of concerns. Um, but all of a sudden, all these little girls that come and dance with me were so excited when she started promoting slippers that came in their skin tone. And that was just such a magical thing to see. Um, I never felt like slippers like it's something I took for granted and think about because they're they're pretty heinous looking until they're point shoes anyways um and you can either have the pink ones or the nude ones that look like phlegm um but just seeing them so excited was something big um but now where I lead employee resource groups for my organization I feel that it's not that I want to halt progress, but sometimes I'll get approached. Do you think the individuals in XYZ affinity group would be interested in, you know, this, that, or the other promoting something? And I always say, I will pass along the opportunity to them, but I will not make that commitment on their behalf because people have to engage in change in the way that they want to. That's what brings about, I think, authentic and genuine commitment and volunteerism and, and civil advocacy um, versus being told that they must. So I definitely have um, I have a heart for the champion and I love to see it. But then I think we balance some of that progress with other people who don't fit in that um, group also have to take it up because people that are routinely being excluded or having that that microaggression can't be forced to be the only ones that are making the commitment to the effort that's exhausting. Thank you. Um, I know a lot of y'all probably have a anecdote or two from these different stories that were told in this section because a lot a lot blossoms in her career. She starts having like, you know, all these different projects and stuff going on. There was one, mainly, I think it's of interest to me because I have a podcast. So I'm going to share just something that jumped out at me that, you know, was kind of encouraging to see. Obviously, there was a lot of, you know, background and she had to fight to get this podcast or first where she wanted it to go. But I want to say, I know it had different names throughout its like life, but I guess it was the His and Hers podcast uh, with her, her uh, colleague, Mike. Um, and she said, quote, when the podcast aired, neither one of us was happy with it. It just didn't feel like us. After that, we said, fuck it. We're going to do us and deal with whatever consequences came with that. If people didn't like who we were, then fuck them too. End quote. And 
uh, I can just say for myself as a person who has a podcast now, I truly didn't even know how to look at the stats until like last month. I had to like contact the platform that I use and I'm like, hey, can you tell me how to find the stats? It was something with the cookies or whatever. I had to clear something. I don't know. Um, they had to walk me through the troubleshooting steps, but I literally even know how to see how many people download my podcast. Right. But I think the, that was good for me not to see the, the day to day or the, the statistics for it. And I don't even remember how to check it. If I had to go back in and do it again, I would probably need to email them again, but, um, doing something. And I would say if Jamel were to write a sequel or to rename this book, it should be unapologetic because she like someone had mentioned it earlier in this uh, conversation how unapologetic she is i think i'm just saying jamel if you're listening that was my idea it is on the internet that i came up with the idea unapologetic the sequel but when it came to the podcast it was like no we tried to we were going to do something unique and they she started the podcast because there wasn't a space they wanted to create a space for them to do what they wanted to do and create the way they wanted to create. But they had outside pressures that influenced that very first episode. So what I just shared with you was they were disappointed with what went out, right? Because it was kind of like reminiscent of what she said or what I shared earlier, where it was like, I spent my first column explaining why I deserve to be there instead of just writing, you know? Um, and so she explained like, that that was how it felt when she first started this podcast and then she came to the realization like this sucks fuck what other people think i'm going to do what i want and if they don't like it then fuck them too and i would say that is a message that i resonate with uh because it quite frankly is reminds me of my job as a therapist um i'm very quick to say well if they don't like me then Find somebody else, find better, you know, find something that's better fit for you. I'm going to keep doing what the fuck I'm doing because for the most part, most people are seem to like me and benefit from it, right? You can't please everybody. I think the same goes with my podcast too. I don't check the stats mainly because I do this because I don't do it to make money. I do it to, because I have, I want to talk shit on the internet. Um, and that's kind of what Jamel said. She said, I wanted a place to talk shit on the internet. So I created a place to talk shit on the internet. And so she's like, so if I'm going to do that, if this is what I want to create, I can't spend my time worrying about how it's going to be perceived or how it can be marketed and stuff like that. Absolutely. There are stories and uh, nuances to that where she says, hey, the people who are supposed to advocate for this and get it funding and get it the viewership and the marketing and all the stuff that it should have should be doing their job or they may not have given it what they should have given it. But at the end of the day, she had to do what was genuine to her. She had to do what was unapologetic. And so I think I've definitely come into my own with this podcast. Um, I cringe uh, when I go back to season one. Uh, this podcast has over 100 episodes now, and it's in the fifth season. So um, when I go back, I don't listen to actually once I edit an episode and put it out, I don't go back and listen just because it cringes me out, right? But on the few occasions where I did go back and like listen to something, I was like, okay, well, I'm doing really good stuff now.
And if someone really does go back in the archives and finds that, well, you're going to find who John Zell was at that point, And he was trying his best. Uh, and he did not know about uh, editing. And he did not know how to polish things up and all of that. It was choppy. And we continue to grow and evolve. And I think that's with anything, anything creative, you have to practice, you have to make mistakes, you have to be awkward and uncomfortable, and then you come into your own or you develop that craft. I could look back at my very first therapy session, train wreck. Literally, um, I was overdressed for the occasion, literally sweating because I was in an office that was pretty much all window with the sun beating down on me. Truly, it was a literal train wreck. Terrible session. I don't know why the client came back after that. But now I'm able to just talk to strangers very easily. And I literally show up in my Crocs, sweatpants, and whatever damn t shirt I feel like putting on that day. And, you know, you might catch these locks down on my shoulders. You might catch them up in a pineapple and a bun. I'm going to be comfortable and be who the fuck I am. And if you don't like it, don't come back. So. I I loved hearing about her journey with doing her podcast, not only because I have one, but because it's a good example for do something because you want to do it. Not everything is going to be perfect. And then learn from it and keep doing it because you need to create or you need to be unapologetic or you need to be your genuine self in order to have the quality of life that we're all fighting for. I'm going to stop there but I really enjoyed that part. Share something from this section of the book, this this week's reading that kind of gave you that feeling or made you think. Well, I had ideas, but then you got on this creative kick. And as an artist, for me, it's taken me probably, I hadn't done art in a long time and started with a creative group in the beginning of um, the pandemic. So it's been three years that this group has been together and new people come and, and old people go and, and there's a core of us that have been there from the beginning. But you, everybody talks about the highlight reel that everybody shares of their life on social media. And you have to get past that. Like she was just like, I'm going to put it out. And we didn't want it, that first episode to be that, but then that's what happened. And it's because there's always going to be some part of us that doesn't trust that instinct or that gut. And uh, I'm learning to just put my art out there and not care whether you like it because I'm not making it for you. I mean, if you send me your your address, I'll send you something. But if you know, if you don't want to pay for it or you don't want a gift, I don't give a shit what you think of my art. You know, it's for me. It's about me. And and finally coming into that and and meeting other people that already have that mindset that they're just going to do what they do and create just for the sake of creating. I mean, how healing is that to just be able to, even if you're cooking a meal or if you're gardening or whatever your creative aspect is, is just, um, and the fact that we got to hear her speak about that, you know, that it wasn't something that the network came to them and said, Hey, we have this for you. Like that was something they created for themselves. And yeah, they had to get it past, you know, they had an audition for it because it is a network and whatever. But the fact that they took that initiative to create the space that they needed. And then because they were bold and they did that, it wound up, you know, coming into a show. And, um, yeah, we just need to not give up 
and we need to be who we are and we need to create whatever that means to us. And, and, um, yeah, it's always going to look like shit in the beginning. It's supposed to, right? Because we don't know what we're doing and we're learning. And I, I'm starting to like that process. Follow Angela on social media. So I've not only like the creative things I've seen you do, but I've seen you like uh, I, with the the skating and stuff like that um, that you do. And um, what I can attest to is that the joy and the fact that you're doing that for you first and foremost, whether it be like the um, the receipt art that you do, um, I see that just in how you present it, I see that you're doing it for your own uh, experience and your own joy and your own self-care first and foremost. And then when you put it out into the world through something like a platform like that, it is what it is. I already got what I needed out of it. So if you identify with it or if you uh, engage with it, that's cool too. But I, I can just say as a person who observes human behavior, you know, for a living, right? I see that true, genuine joy and how it's for you first and foremost from viewing that. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you. I'll cry later. And this is just because I'm nerdy, but she has a podcast that she does on Spotify called Unbothered. So the name is not far off from what you came up with. Um, it's actually a very good podcast. And I actually did get ready to send you the link for a Red Table Talk with their mom. I will send you that once we're done here. So if anybody else is interested, she did do a Red Table Talk with Jada. And it probably is pretty good. So if you send it to me, I'll um, I'll send it out to because I have everyone's email for the Zoom links and stuff like that. So I'll I'll share I'll pass it on to everybody. Got it. And this is probably going back a little bit, but it's that time where she's sitting with her, I think, grandma, aunt, and mom, and she's like, you guys have been married over eight times. Um, that's <laughs> first, uh, the the audacity she had to speak that to a Black family is kind of reckless. Um, I would have never said that. I know better. Exactly. So, uh, but it's very interesting because it plays a big part in her relationship with men, how she grew up she bases a lot of her interactions with men on what she saw her mom her grandma and her aunt doing. i hope she does more about her mom because in in chapter 12 she talks about maybe having her mom move in with her but then she never goes back to that so i'm hoping she does because she also talks about like when she was talking about how much money she was making she was talking about um, when her and mike got the show that they now had an opportunity to create generational wealth which plays into not just the families they are going to be creating, but I think for like her mom and, and that kind of stuff too. So I hope before the end of the book, she gets into more of that too. I agree. And I think uh, all of us have, you know, at least the, you know, we've all, uh, I think most of y'all have participated in more than one of these months book clubs and stuff. So we've gotten more acclimated and comfortable with critiquing something too that may not make sense or whatever. And it's interesting that we're breaking up an entire work into four parts, you know, so depending on how the chapters get divided and stuff. But we talked last week about how the book started with, I went to therapy on a dare or a, I can't remember the specific context, but then we haven't heard a drop about therapy since. And then it was like, uh, like you said, like, oh, 
well, you know, she talks about hoping that her mom would move in with her, that she could kind of take care of her. But then we didn't hear about it for these whole, you know, all of these chapters, you know, so it's almost like as if this book isn't already finished or something. But it's like for us who are experiencing it in like real time, like as we break it up into these four weeks, it's almost like, oh, well, I hope all of these loose ends get tied up at the the end of this book. You know, it's kind of a fun thing to like, I don't know, look forward to and see like, hey, did I get my answer to that? Or maybe that's going to be maybe that's going to be in the the sequel or something like that, you know? So that's a good observation though, about like what, what does happen with the the older generation? Cause she spent the first part of the book talking about all the trauma her mom went through and stuff. And it's like in the last section, the part two that we did, it was like, we didn't hear much about her mom, but then we heard about like the fried chicken driving, you know, in the Buick um, down South, you know, that kind of mother daughter moment. But then I'm pretty sure this entire section that we just read, we didn't hear anything about mom. So um, it'll be interesting how it comes to a close. But none of you who have read it ahead, don't spoil it for us yet. I hope she has a different editor for the next book. A little, little yeah. more flowy. Just wanted a little flowy. She just seems so fascinating to me. Like, I grew up in a dysfunctional family with both men and women in the family that weren't strong. Um, maybe strong character, like good people, but like not strong, not confident. And so to read about strong people and to, to start to have strong people in my life and confident people, it's, it's very addictive. And to not get like whole portions of what she went through. And it's like, I know, like you said, there's probably some things she can't fully disclose, but I just feel like, I don't know. I think whoever edited the book did her a little bit of a disservice because I just feel like, okay, we started talking about this, but then it's gone. And now we're talking about this, but then it's gone. And now we're talking about, it was frustrating because I just, I'm greedy and I want the whole story. And maybe because we're just, people and we want it in chronological order and it doesn't she doesn't always do that so it's like um i had to stop myself from like judging it and just be like okay if you tried to tell your story exactly how chopped up would that shit be because you start talking about something but then you remember something and then it goes over here and in people's spider web to begin with and so yeah i just want more so I'm going to listen to the podcast and now I have to see the red table thing and I am going to read her articles because we're only getting a glimpse, you know, like when I read Viola Davis's book, I mean, you're getting, but she's much older too, right? Like, I mean, I mean, Jamel talks about like the eighties and stuff. So I'm thinking she's roughly around my age, kind of late forties, early fifties, I'm assuming. Yeah, I just, I get greedy. It's like, you know, you take someone out for dinner and I'm the person that gets the sampler platter because I want all of the things. So if you're going to have something like that, then I'm going to- She's 47. She's 47. Okay. So she's a little bit younger than me. But when you think of sometimes with a memoir, you think about someone much older. So you're getting more of the life and the depth of the life and maybe they can communicate it better or maybe they had a different editor or- somebody helping them write it. So I just, I want more. I'm great. 
I agree. And I think you understand too, like if we were to write our own memoir, how, first of all, how it is a, I think it's a, I, I, I tell my, it's it's been in my head since before I even realized what life was going to throw at me that someday I want to write a book. But the idea of compiling it all down, and plus I'm 30, so in my head I have this also thing like, you can't write a memoir, you can't write something because you haven't lived enough yet, right? Whereas I've read some memoirs of some really young people, and I'm like, oh my god, and you're only this old, and you've been through all of this, you know? So it really depends, but like. The I I guess I I agree that as a unapologetic consumer of anything memoir, I was at the gym this morning and I saw someone on the TV talking about their new memoir, and I was like, "Hmm, I only have eight books that are sitting on my desk unread because I haven't gotten time to read them yet." But even ten would be fine, you know. So I'm already thinking about what I'm going to add to it. So I love memoirs, but like. I also have great respect for somebody who can, first of all, take the time and put something together that is clear enough for the masses to read. Because, I mean, I get on this podcast sometimes and I'm like, we're talking about like an example of something. I'm like, oh, shit, here's an experience or a memory that I have that I haven't even, it just got unearthed and it like was dissociated. And now it's coming to the surface and I'm going to share about it, right? And I'm like, there's so much that you could say that you forgot to say, but once it's out, it's like not really editable. So I can say, yes, I'm greedy. Yeah, I want more. I want, you know, uh, the uh, more context and things like that. But at the same time, we can also, you know, there's different angles to look at it. So it's like, ah, well, maybe there's more to come, you know, or maybe. And I also will say from the writer's perspective, as somebody who I write, uh, you know, uh, blogs, articles, and like essays. Sometimes I ask myself, I'm like, am I watering down what the book could be because I'm putting out little snapshots of things? You know, in my head, I've never written a whole book, right? So I'm like, well, maybe if she's written so many columns and she's done so many different things, when she got to writing the book, maybe so much has already been said that she felt like she was being redundant. You know, so there's all these different things. But then also we said, well, maybe the editor has like taken some of the shine off of this thing. So there's so many different things that we may never know. So that's the interesting thing about creative stuff is that every person perceives it differently. And some people might read this and be like, oh, she shared way too much, you know, um, about certain things. So um, I guess it just depends on the perspective. So thank you for sharing that uh, critique. I think that it's good that we can also feel comfortable saying like what we wish they could have done better. Um, so uh, anyway, thank you everyone for listening to um, this third part. Uh, come back next week. We are going to be reviewing chapters 15 through the end, which is chapters 15 through 18. If you're following along in the book, that's page uh, 179 to the end. So um, definitely looking forward to, based on what we just talked about, seeing if we get uh, some of the loose ends tied up or um, at least some sort of, uh, I guess, closure on, on, on some things. And uh, also looking forward to getting into some of those extra resources, such as the Red Table Talks and, and things like that. And if I can remember, I will include the links in this episode show notes to those, those things so that uh, listeners to this podcast can enjoy those things and explore them as well. So um, until next time, thank you all uh, for listening and take care. Thank you for listening. 
Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode's show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.